Welcome, welcome back, everyone. I am Cass Piancy, and I'm joined, as usual, by my partner in crime, who's sitting right across from me today. That part's not usual. No, that is very unusual. Uh, Mr. Bennett Tomlin, how are you today? I know the answer. I'm doing great. How are you doing, Cass? I'm doing good. We've had a long day, um, but we have more to talk about. Feels like we've been talking all, all day. Um, but we have a lot to talk about today. Uh, so let's get started. Um, all of the auditors seem to be vanishing from the cryptocurrency industry, which is, you know, for such a vibrant, innovative scene, you would expect that the auditors would want to be a part of it. So um, why don't you why don't you get us started? Well, I guess let's start with Binance's auditors, Mazers, who was also used to sign off on the Trump uh, <laughs> financial statements, and now, now. And then they started doing, sorry, Binance's proof of reserve statements, which they are what they are, you know. And now they, after doing one of those, have decided that cryptocurrency is too risky for them. Which, you know, says something. <laughs> we don't have to get into exactly what it says, but it says something. Um, there's other, uh, there's other, Prager Metis uh, is the other one that is absolutely 100% confirmed, I believe, to be quitting mm -hmm. the cryptocurrency industry. Is that right? Yeah, that they were, um, they're supposedly, they were the first metaverse auditors, and even they have decided <laughs> that it is too much for them to be in the cryptocurrency space. <laughs> they can't do it anymore. Yeah, uh, not again, not not super surprising. Um, uh oh, what do we got? We're both. One of us is in the left channel, and one of us is in the right channel. Oh. Apparently. Uh oh. I don't know what we're gonna do about that. No, we're gonna keep going. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. So regardless, the other one that I want to talk about is um, unconfirmed, seemingly, but is uh, Armenino, which uh, Forbes reported with two sources, uh, uncon like unknown sources, um, but two sources claim that Armanino, which was like the king of getting involved with cryptocurrency companies, was also deciding to wind up their cryptocurrency business. Um, they do real-time reserves for TUSD and Nexo. So I don't know what those two companies are going to do. Maybe, I guess, nothing. They don't have to do anything, do they? They never had to do this in the first place. That's right. Um, so yeah, Prager Metis, uh, Armanino, and, uh, and, and BDO, well, Mazers, and, and, the and then the last one is BDO, who, again, unconfirmed, but the suggestion has been that it looks like they are also going to wind up their cryptocurrency uh, uh, auditing services, which we know exactly who claims to be using BDO and loves to brag about it, which is Tether. So if um, if they're getting abandoned, what does that mean for Tether, I think is the question. Well, especially since Tether is legally audit or legally obligated to provide these assurances under the New York Attorney General. And so more Cayman can't do them anymore. MHA can't do them anymore. The only people that are left like, who's left? Who are they going to get their assurances from? Scientology? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the 
idea that this is going to happen. They, I don't know what they would do. Maybe they go revert back to their top 12 auditor that they briefly were bragging about. I'm not exactly sure. If I go to their transparency page, no, that's not going to have it. Oh, is it? Reports and reserves. Um, there we go. So let's look at all of them. How many have they had done so far? One, oh, that certainly doesn't count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Uh, that is, so they're almost done. In February of next year, Tether essentially no longer has to do these assurances, right? According to the New York Attorney General's deal? Yeah, they had to do two years and after that they're free. They can go back to getting lawyers to sign letters, getting their bank to sign letters, ignoring it entirely. Like, I wonder if that's what they do. I mean, they're right at the tail end of this. If, uh, BDO decides to quit on them. I don't know. Find how, are th how are they supposed to have unrivaled transparency then? I mean, do they need unrivaled transparency at that point? Um, I don't know what they're, I don't know. I don't I, know what unrivaled transparency means for them. <laughs> right. And I don't know what they're, I don't know what they're actually, I don't know what they're actually offering um, of value besides not, you know, not being properly audited like i don't think their transparency is what is driving any use case for them period um yeah but like broadly there were only a few firms who would do anything like audit firms who would do anything in the crypto space and we're talking about four of that select few who would do anything and they have all basically said no this is too risky for us this is not worth it and they're all withdrawing from the space it says something you know, I don't know what it, I don't know what it'll end up meaning. I don't know if there's other auditors who will end up taking these people's place. It is curious why all of them are quitting at once. I guess it's not. Everyone's just going to say it's FTX. I don't know. It's, I, it, you would think that, so when we've seen other uh, uh, accounting fraud, like with Arthur Anderson in the uh, late 90s and early aughts, um, not every accounting firm was getting slapped and smashed with fines. They weren't all committing massive frauds at the time. So I'm wondering, like, are they all bouncing? Because they all feel like they might be doing, like, they, they might all get in some serious trouble right now. All of them? Like, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. I think there's a possibility <clears throat> that they're trying to avoid them potentially getting in trouble. One of the things that's interesting to me is uh, Francine McKenna, who we've had on this show before at Read the Auditors on Twitter, was tweeting about one of the challenges for auditors when you're assigned to audit like FTXs were. One entity in these where it is a combination of different related parties. Just auditing that entity doesn't actually give you that much insight. And this is the thing we talked about when David Morris was on to talk Enron, is because of all the related party transactions, the auditors didn't actually have a good understanding of the financial reality. And WorldCom is a little bit different because they were just outright like creating numbers in their accounting system that didn't make sense, but so was FTX, right? Yeah. And so maybe FTX made these auditors realize, oh no, we were doing the same thing we've done before and that we fucked up before, and we got to stop doing that before someone gets turned into Accenture 2.0. <clears throat> well, I mean, this might bring us to our next point, which is uh, Binance, uh, which used... Um, uh, uh, Excuse me, that I don't remember which auditing firm it is. Um, Mazers is who did their proof of reserves. Used Mazers to do their proof of reserves. That proof of reserves was 
uh, taken offline. <laughs> the, the entire subdomain for Mazur's crypto business was just wiped. Gone. Just gone. Uh, so <clears throat> I, um, I guess, uh, yeah, I'm wondering what could cause that. But then I'm also thinking we heard from apparently the CFO of Binance, right? Uh, we heard that the CFO said, the previous CFO, sorry, not the current mm -hmm. CFO, the previous CFO of Binance. Is there a current CFO? I have no idea. Um, the previous C, uh, CFO said that they had never been shown the full financial documents, which I don't, it's hard to imagine. That's abs like, it's absurd. It is blowing my mind to imagine being the chief financial officer of an entity valued at many billions of dollars, doing like tens of billions of dollars in trades monthly, and you're not allowed to see the books? What, what is your role in the organization? What do you actually do? Uh, well, I mean, so I think this is where we get back to what... Uh, like what the role of an auditor is like, it's funny because we reflect on it and then a, a full audit is a procedure that takes a long time. You have to like go through all of the, all of the entries, all of the ledgers, you have to figure out who was spending what for what, who was buying what for what, uh, do the numbers match up? Like, are, are you solvent? Uh, these are like questions that can actually only be answered with a full audit. And so you and I were talking about this, and I, I was like, why are we? I guess we addressed this with Francine, mm -hmm. but I was like, why? Why are we seeing so much of this attestation, assurances, like all this stuff that definitely is not an audit? Well, the answer is because they can't get audits. Yeah. The the more interesting question is why can't these firms get audit? Is it because these firms are just stricken with fear about this new unproven? 12-year-old technology that they just can't wrap their heads around? Or is it that many of these firms have operated at best in very gray areas in order to continue their operations? Well, we still have uh, Grant Thornton auditing USD coin for the time being. Yeah, but now that Circle canceled their SPAC, Circle's probably not actually going to keep doing audits. They're just going to keep doing the attestations. Oh, because while they were doing this back, they had to file with the SEC like their actual... Um, audited statements. Yes. Audited annually and subject to review by the SEC. I see. Um, huh. Yeah, that hang, is... Hang up a second. Your phone's, there you go. You're good. Uh, that, that is interesting. Um, I hadn't thought about that. I, I do wonder if like now the, now the go-to is just like, Audit? Why? Like, why Why would we get an attestation, an assurance, an audit? Why bother? Like, what are you really accomplishing? I guess they can keep accomplish, trying to accomplish this. They can keep attempting to, I don't know, push whatever this is uh, on the greater public and expect everybody to kind of believe it, maybe? Um, I don't know. But, like, clearly it didn't work for Binance. Kind of shot them in the foot, I would say. Uh, really backfired for them, almost. Um but what is going on with Binance now? I think that, uh, I don't know. It's, um, it seems like a lot. Yes. It's, <laughs> they, they keep seeming to be 
behaving strangely. Like CZ going, watch out for exchanges, making big transfers before proof of reserves. And then like two days later, he's like, oh no, all these big transfers we're doing are because we're trying to do our proof <laughs> of reserves. And then like, it's, um, it's kind of inexplicable, the things he's been doing and the way they've been behaving. They got this one proof of reserves and now aren't going to be able to get any more for a while. And... And you were looking a little more into the past of Binance recently. Well, I wanted to bring that up. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up because I, I was seeing him tweet about how they had no debt. They or I don't know if he was quote no, he was doing an interview. They have no debt. They have no investment like no investors in Binance. Uh, and then I just was like, wait, is that even true? I was just like, I want to fact check that. And the reality is like, no, it's not true. They do have investors, but it's like for a totally like stupid amount of money. It's for $88,888. Now we can talk about why that is uh, mainly simply just Chinese superstition, uh, superstition. Like it's a lucky number. So, you know, 88,888. But why three funds were able to invest in the Binance Series A that took place on September 1st, 2017, apparently? I like, it, I, I don't know, I guess so. Um, but it was a very, very small amount of money, and it was three firms. One of these firms is called Black Hole Capital, because of course it is. Um, it's almost as good as the name is Wormhole. And what's interesting about this is that Black Hole Capital basically only made investments in 2016 and 2017. They made one investment in 2018, one investment in 2020, but they have, it seems like they're gone. I'm not sure if they're gone or not, but it seems like they don't exist any longer. So that's one of the um, that's one of the funds. Three firms, yeah. Yeah. Then the second one is Fun City Capital. Fun City Capital also seems to only have invested in 2017 and 2018. They did one again, one investment in 2020. Um, so Fun City Capital. Uh, these are both China-based. Funds, by the way, not that I mean it doesn't matter, but it matters a little bit with how hard CZ tries to pretend there's no connections between Binance and China. It matters a little bit that that's where the money was coming from. Well, I think that's right, and I do think we were talking about what it what this potentially could be because it's not real equity. Like, there's not a lot of equity that these people hold for this little amount of money, or maybe it's more it's outsized equity. I have no idea, really. But like, either way. Um, I think it's it seems like Guanxi, which is uh, kind of like you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours uh, deal in China. It's it's just kind of quid pro quo, kind of working together to to make business a reality. Anyway, so these are two out of three of the funds that got an got an investment. Both of them seem to have vanished, um, and then the last one. Uh, and we also have Binance saying that they're not a part of the U.S. at all. Well, one of the investors is a company called Limitless Crypto Investments, which is located in Houston, Texas. Uh, the founder, Matthew Jordan, American dude. Um, they only made investments in 2017 and 2018. They have been gone for four plus years now. Um, and so I guess the question is, what are these companies... Why did they invest in Binance, and um, why did Binance let them invest? I think that the fact that they decided to do an equity round 
for such a de minimis amount for not even one engineer's salary for one year. It's clearly not actually about capitalizing Binance. And so because of that, they are now in a position like so. And as you mentioned, the amount is symbolic. It's lucky. So I think the implication of them having this equity round is because they were trying to maintain important relationships. And they thought that these entities were ones who would be valuable to have aligned with them from the beginning. At least that's the only way I can interpret them doing that low of an investment. It's, uh, it's really weird. I don't really know how to interpret it, period, other than what you said. Um, it, it's confusing. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not exact. I tried to get in touch with some of these guys. I haven't been able to reach them. Their websites seem to be very much dead. Um, their investments are pretty poor for the most part. You know, they invest in like Ren. Um, I'm looking at Limitless's stuff right now. And let's see, Power Ledger. I'm, I don't even know what that is, but uh, okay. Power Ledger, Tezos, Republic Protocol. One chain uh, wasn't that from 2017. One chain. Um, I don't remember, man. 2017 was half a decade ago. We've been doing this for half a decade. <laughs> Binance Exchange is listed as their investments as well. Um, so yeah, I don't. Um, I think all of it is just really confusing. Also, he clearly maybe they exited, but none of them. It doesn't show exits from any of their Binance investments. So I, I'm not sure about that. Well, in. Which corporate entity did they invest in? And does that entity still exist? Is that entity still a part of Binance? Binance has switched like countries, entities, everything like six times. Maybe the current Binance corporate structure doesn't have any equity investors. Maybe when they restructured, they either wiped them out or bought them out or did whatever they had to do. Maybe CZ is telling the truth. So, and, and this was a naive question that I asked you the other day because I was also thinking about how there's Binance Labs outside of, because he's talking about how there's no investments in Binance. And I was like, well, Binance Labs exists. And like, what's the deal with that? And it's like, I guess it's supposed to be entirely separate from Binance itself, right? These should not be. Yes. Like Binance US is totally separate from Binance. Even though we saw some interesting transactions happening with that this past week. Let's, so, yeah. And what you're, <laughs> I'm going to pull you away from Binance Labs for a second and we can go back, I promise. <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. But Binance US is buying Voyager's assets and yeah. guaranteeing their liabilities, assuming the court accepts it. Um, it's a weird And that's interesting it's a weird because situation. originally Coindesk reported that Binance was the one considering it and it was Binance that was originally putting in the offer before FTX won. Mm -hmm. And like Binance Labs, as you mentioned, is their venture capital arm, the one you would expect to be doing investments. You don't expect the exchange itself to necessarily be doing investments. Mm -mm. And then instead of Binance, it's Binance US, which is challenging for me because the reason you would buy a defunct lending platform is because you decide that whatever the gap between assets and liabilities is, it's worth closing because the customer relationships, the customer data, whatever is going to be more valuable. But Binance US shouldn't be able to service a lot of the customers of Voyager because Voyager wasn't like exclusively in the United States. It was out of Canada and a ton of their, um, a ton of their clients and stuff were not in the U S so what Binance U S is going to have a bunch of new customers who can't use Binance U S and then because Binance U S is totally separate, they're definitely not going to direct them all to Binance. Right? Like it's, it's 
confusing. Well, yeah, Voyager was Canadian and listed on a on the Canadian Stock Exchange, right? Am I getting that right? Yes. Yeah. I don't know. <clears throat> it is it it is it is difficult to parse why they would do this. Um, I know his suggestion is, hey, hey, burrito, cut it out. Um, <laughs> Cat's messing up our live stream. <laughs> um, Cats, man. <laughs> well, I love my cat. Uh, but anyway, sorry, uh, lost my train of thought there. Um, yeah, okay, so... Uh, it, it's confusing to me. It's confusing to me why B Binance US would buy this Canadian company and how they intend to utilize this in a positive way for themselves. That's the that's the business question, right? Because yeah. it's not about like, oh, is this to help the customer? Because I never believe that when these CEOs or whatever say it's to help the people. Like, no, it's not. Um, I need to understand why this helps your bottom line. I'm not sure I totally understand that with this. Um, but... Let me get back to this other point, which was Binance Labs, which has uh, a fund named Startup Fund. So they gave that a lot of thought. Um, well, now they also have the Industry Recovery Fund. Well, is that from Binance Labs? Yes. Oh, well, that hasn't been listed yet. Okay, that's good. <laughs> of course it hasn't. It probably hasn't actually been set up. They probably never actually set up like an entity for the fund. It was just CZ going, yeah, maybe we'll throw some money. Is around. there a wallet? Is there a confirmed wallet for the for that fund? I don't think so. And they're not using that to do to do this purchase. As they far haven't as we, said they are. Yeah, as far as we understand. Um, also, that would eat away the entire half of it. That would eat away half of the recovery fund that they had created. Right? Are, is it? Are they only doing five hundred million for Voyager? Is that their bid? I thought they were paying a billion. Yeah, and their industry recovery fund was a billion. It's two, isn't it? Isn't that their claim? I thought the goal was that eventually they'd find other people and get yeah, it up to yeah, that, okay, but fair, they never found other people. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, so Binance Labs has this startup fund, and there's two investors in it for apparently five, money raised $500 million. Apparently this is all, I assume this is all I, outside capital. I have no idea, actually. But $500 million, and uh, the... Two companies are DST Global and Briar Capital. Um, they're, I mean, DST, I can't imagine possibly spent half of it. It, it didn't spend $250 million on this. Briar Capital has one to 10 employees. Uh, and I don't know, I don't even know what they have uh, assets under management, um, but I don't think that these are ginormous companies. So that 500 million mostly probably came from Binance, I would assume. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe Binance is just making so much money that you just can't even understand it, Cass. Maybe. There's just so many fees and so many opportunities for money. This is the pushback that we get. Yeah. I mean, this is the real pushback that we get. And so let's let's actually acknowledge that as like a possibility. Like maybe they genuinely are making so much money that they can dump $500 million into a fund at once. Like maybe that actually isn't that much money to now them. Now they can't show it to their CFO that they're doing that. <laughs> right. And I guess I'm curious why, I'm curious why they are not just hiding their financials, but like... It, it just doesn't seem like the most prudent thing to do. And why are they asking for help to establish these recovery funds? If they have so much money, 
that they can just dump $500 million into a startup fund at once. It doesn't seem super realistic to me, but I'm not sure. Maybe I don't have, like, they are the number one exchange in the world, and uh, cryptocurrency exchange in the world. Yeah, they're up to what, like 70% of total volume? That's decentralization. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't want Binance controlling basically the entire global market for cryptocurrencies? I can't think of anyone who would be better suited for that job. But uh, you have a, a theory right now about Binance. I'm not sure if you want to talk about it in full, but let's just say... No, I can talk about that. Okay. Uh, so there was some Reuters reporting suggesting that a couple of different prosecutors were ready to indict Binance and CZ on money laundering charges. Right. There was also reporting that the indictment was being held up because of the Money Laundering and Asset Recovery Service part of the Department of Justice who needs to sign off on this type of indictment mm -hmm. for a money laundering indictment for something this large. We also found out that Binance hired the former head of MLARS to go and negotiate in Washington to try to strike a deal. Which is weird. And my gut instinct <laughs> is that they are going to be successful in striking yeah. a deal because we saw with BitMEX, right? Like you can violate quite a few things. And as long as you eventually cooperate, the prosecutors are going to take the win over the death. You know, they don't want to. And so like, well, here, here's a counter that I hadn't thought of when you initially had brought this up. Um, he, the, the two other people that were um, subpoenaed or indicted or whatever with uh, Arthur. Yeah. Um, Greg Dwyer was the one who went straight up on the, like, I don't even know if he eventually got caught. I think he did, maybe? I'm not sure. But the other the other guy, Samuel something, um, mm -hmm. he also didn't immediately get, like, they were all on the run, I think, mm -hmm. at first. And I think Arthur was the first one to flip, which, again, I think if you're the first one to flip, it gives you some room for leniency in the prosecutor's eyes. Like... Caroline is going to be treated way better than Sam is going to be. And it's not simply, it's not because she necessarily did less wrong. Who knows? Yeah. But like, it's because she went straight to New York, turned herself in and said, I'm talking. I'm happy. I'll tell you talk. everything. You want to see the secret signal chat called wire fraud? I'll show you the secret Here signal chat. <laughs> Come on. You know, you want to see it. So um, I think, I think that could be part of this. And when you look at CZ, like, who, sorry, who's on? Who's ahead of him? Like, who else would they want to catch besides CZ? I can't think of anybody. I don't even. I, we don't even know if he actually is in control of Binance. Like, he is, but he isn't. I. It seems weird. I. We were talking about that too. I. I think he's in control of Binance. I think he might. I think there might be some people who, at least, have a say in what's going on, and he has to at least hear them out. Like people he had to have a special equity round with very symbolic numbers That kind for. of thing. That's Those something that rings people, a bell. Is that what you're saying? That's something that rings a bell, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's possible. And honestly, I think this kind of segues us into like our last kind of challenging topic we wanted to talk about today, which is like the role of regulators in like this kind of increasingly globalized thing. Like what is the appropriate response to a Binance, to an FTX, to a Tether? And like, what does that really mean? It's really, it's, it's tough because I've been thinking about it and it's so, it's so weird. The two side, the two heated sides that we hear on cryptocurrency Twitter, like one side says, 
if you guys had figured out the right regulatory regime, then FTX never would have left the US and this never would have happened, which is like a pretty bold claim. But then also, then the other side says like, um, but like FTX happened out there in the wild was, uh, was like driven off because it was a, a bad actor and therefore regulatory regime is working perfectly fine. And I think really neither are exactly true. Like, I don't think actually either of those, I don't think it's a duality here. I don't think uh, it's either or. And I think there's probably something in the middle of that that is right. The idea that FTX wouldn't have been a massive fraud if the U.S. had a different regulatory regime is insane. That's an insane thing mm -hmm. to think. Like, they stole billions of dollars in customer funds. Right. Would Quadriga have not been a fraud if they had been set up in the U.S.? It's it's absurd. Right. And so, like, that is nonsense. And, like, on a more practical level, we talked about this a little bit when John Reed Stark was on. Um, they keep requesting regulatory clarity, but it, they keep getting clarity and ignoring it. Yeah. Like, both Clayton and Gensler have been quite clear that basically every token they've seen is a security which would mean all the exchanges trading basically any token need to be registered as securities exchanges. And that a lot of these issuances are probably illegal. They just fundamentally don't want that to be true in the sort trying to ignore it so that they can continue to persist in the act, in their activities in the hope that there won't be serious intervention because there hasn't been political will for serious intervention. But even if there is like, what do you do if OKX or Hobi or Poloniex are doing all sorts of weird stuff like that. Why would that possibly be the SEC's jurisdiction or exactly. why, why should they bother caring about it? Probably I would assume, I guess I have no idea, but I would assume most customers on those exchanges are not Americans. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know what role the SEC plays in a global regulatory regime. We've, the world has changed drastically since the SEC was formed, even since the CFTC and like, I, for God's sakes, the Department of Justice, like the world has, the world has shifted dramatically. And we're talking about like, you know, we talked about Doquan, you have Interpol. That's like the clearest international police force that exists. That's literally what it is. But even that, you can seemingly outrun it. Um, well, Interpol is less an international police force and more of a way for police forces around the world to communicate. They've got a few sure. of their own agents, but sure. they're not like really an investigative or like serious independent force. Um, but 195 different countries are on board. Yeah. Which yeah. tells you like, okay. Some level of cooperation with that. Right. Right. But yet, Doquan is in Serbia or Kosovo. Um, anyway, but, but my point being here that we've seen previous, we've, you, you talked about uh, Poker's Black Friday mm -hmm. being an example of like regulators and law enforcement agencies working ar across the globe to yeah. enforce actions on these illegal money transmitters and uh, services providers and stuff. Yeah, but in order to pull it off, it was like a many part investigation involving all these all this global cooperation, and you kind of need to get the buy in then for wherever these individuals and companies and stuff are to like let you go ahead with shutting it down for political and other reasons. Um, and 
in many of those, and like, so back to like, you mentioned these other exchanges, Wobiokex, Poloniex, whatever. My guess is many of them have at least one U.S. person trading on them, right? Sure. Like, <laughs> someone has been able to evade their KYC sure. or whatever. And so they probably you could get a nexus, right? But like, is there the political will to go after a bad actor just because an American happens to be using it for this company that's outside and the U.S.? And is it worth it? And is it worth it? Is it because worth the resources? What are, yeah. And what do you do? How do you even enforce that action, right? Like, if this is a Chinese company or a Singaporean company or like a company in a country that isn't keen on working with you financially to stop them, what, how, how would you possibly make that? That's, I mean, that when, um, the China hustle came out, like mm -hmm. that's a, I don't know, everyone should watch it. It's a pretty great documentary. Um, and it's just about these short sellers who essentially the only way, especially once I, like once they're able, they, these companies are able to list on Amer the American stock markets and it ultimately hurts American investors. But the worst thing that the regulators can do is kick, then delist them from the exchange. Like nothing happens to them back in China. China doesn't care when they steal a bunch of American consumers' dollars. It doesn't matter to China. And so I think like... It's perhaps the ideal outcome right. for that company. Exactly. <laughs> and so that's, I guess that's what I'm saying is like, we're entering a globalized, like a strong globalized world now. I think we were opening up to globalization in like the early aughts and like it started to spread through the internet and communication and now we just see like true globalization and i just wonder like I, it seems like regulators are just going to be endlessly chasing and trying to put out fires that i like it i don't even know how they could and like just bring this kind of back together one of the complaints that you mentioned is that there is no regulatory clarity but like I think there has been clear communication on what U.S. exchanges are supposed to do, and they don't want to because doing that means they can't compete with the exchanges that aren't in the U.S. Right. And, like, I think this is going to become increasingly a problem because regulators and lawmakers now have this clear example of a bad actor in FTX and Alameda that they can point to to justify a whole bunch of other stuff that's going to primarily affect the companies that are easy to go after, not Binance, not Huobi, not Poloniex, not Justin Sun, not any of those people, because that requires interna international coordinated law enforcement efforts, and that's a hard thing to do. So I think part of where my issue comes from, though, with the way American regulators have handled all of this is the best, the best example I have in my mind right now is Moonstone Bank, where you have, I'm just going to run it, run through it really quick. Basically, Alameda Research invested $11.5 million into a very small bank in southeastern Washington state. Uh, it was valued at 20 times book value, which is unheard of in banking in most industries. It's just unheard of. Um, it valued the bank at $115 million. They had $10 million in customer deposits. And then seemingly, no one can confirm this because of bank secrecy laws, but seemingly that allowed Alameda Research and FTX to deposit funds onto Moonstone Bank's platform, into their bank, and who knows what kind of, you know, suspicious activity reports were conducted. Who knows, like, who knows what that, that investment allowed Alameda Research to do. But that isn't the end of the story, because the person who owns Moonstone Bank is Jean Chalapin, who is a French Bahamian, 
citizen. I actually have no idea if he's only French or if he's French Bahamian or if he has, who knows how many citizenships he has. But he is not American is what I, I will say. And I don't know, like I don't want this to sound, uh, maybe, it will, uh, maybe it will sound this way, but it's like I would prefer if there were really, really strict regulations around who, wh what foreigners can buy U.S. banks that are federally, Federal Reserve regulated. And this guy owning or being chairman of the board for Dell Tech Bank and Trust, which is one of the most mentioned banks in the Bahamas leaks, it's it's troubling to me that the Federal Reserve was like, yeah, it seems fine. Seems like a fine cat. Let him buy Moonstone. Well, and what was interesting is after... Uh, like Protos had the conversation with the Federal Reserve and with Washington DFI, there was this piece in Shadow Banker by a former Federal Reserve chairman where they basically described what Moonstone was, about how a company could come in, purchase one of these small banks that already has OCC approval, apply at the Fed for Fed approval, that basically gets rubber stamped, and if you're lucky, the more thorough analysis the Fed might do isn't going to come for a couple years. And so you have a couple years where you can hypothetically, of course, do absolutely chaotic things before the regulators like look at the data retrospectively and go, well, that was crazy. And she, or he was, it was a she. Yes. Uh, she argued that this is like not uncommon. That is a thing that has absolutely happened before. And I am just like, doesn't that, I, my question for some of these regulators was like, okay, so what new tools would you need to be able to have caught this stuff that you didn't catch? And almost all of them are just saying like, well, nothing. We don't really want to catch it. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's their, I think their answer is they don't need new tools, which I think is a fair response. They're probably right. They probably don't need new tools. They aren't doing their job. But they're, they don't, they're not interpreting that is what they're saying. They're, <laughs> they think what they're saying to me is like, we do a perfectly fine job. Leave us alone. But what they're actually saying to me, what I actually hear is we don't regulate like that's not the Federal Reserve's job, is it? We're, we deal with monetary policy. We we check interest rates and uh, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, and big, huge portion of that is regulation. Yeah, and honestly, it kind of comes back to what we've talked about in here before, is that broadly in the United States, and I think globally, there hasn't been the political will for, like, serious regulatory intervention since, like, <laughs> at least Reagan, right? Like, <laughs> chaotic cat. Um, and so because of that lack of political will, any regulators who would have been interested in doing like really strenuous regulation, really thorough looks at all these things have are incentivized not to stay with the regulators, are incentivized to find other roles and other things to do because often it can be challenging for those individuals to advance in uh, those types of roles. One of the things that struck me in reading Sam Cooper's book, Willful Blindness, is that many of the top like RCMP investigators who started to actually like, identify the Vancouver model of money laundering eventually got forced out because they were so frustrated at continually running into walls and their mm -hmm. superiors and stuff and being unable to pursue the investigations and go after that kind of thing. And I and in the United States, I think that problem is a little more diffuse, but like, especially when you have a political climate where there is not even agreement on what that regulation should exist. Like you can't even get both parties to agree that there should be regulation, let alone what that regulation should be. It becomes very challenging for the regulators to operate. It becomes very challenging to get regulators the resources they need. And when you start to develop that culture, 
more resources won't even necessarily fix the problems because you lack the like institutional will and knowledge to pursue that kind of thing. So this is like kind of what we keep coming back to. I think we talked about this when Rohan was on because he was talking about Deal, the former head of the Mint, who like came up with the state quarter program and right. really reinvigorated the Mint, is we should expect more from our regulators. We should demand more from our bureaucrats. But it is very challenging to find bureaucrats and regulators right now who want to do those challenging things. Yeah. The pushback I got from regulators when I talked to them was really disheartening. And and the the lack of it they it seemed like they were definitely not motivated. And I, I like I don't know what to say about that. You know, you hope that these people actually love their jobs and care about what they're doing. Um, there's that dirty money episode about HSBC, which I urge everybody to watch. Um, and in that episode, it's just a dude. It's just a dude who has no special banking education, like didn't go, like didn't get any special degree to be doing what he's doing. He got the job because they wanted to find someone who wouldn't be passionate about what they were doing. And they thought, we'll hire this guy off the street. He'll check the SARS minimally. And if it doesn't match, then he'll let it go. But he just started noticing all these really weird things that were just slightly misspelled or slightly, slightly off kilter. And he just started pursuing it and it screwed their whole business up. And that's where you're like, why aren't there regulators who were at least like, you don't want the Mexican drug cartels and the Colombian drug cartels moving billions of dollars into the US banking system. You don't want that. Stop it from happening. And why aren't you? And I don't, and it's like, it is lack of passion. It's lack of motivation. It's lack of, but, of caring. And it's lack of reward for caring, right? Because these things are so set up to be so resistant to that kind of thing. Like government is supposed like, I guess I think of these people who are in these positions making $125,000 a year with benefits, getting the best medical, getting a nice retirement. Like that is the benefit of working with in government. Like, that doesn't mean you get to just sit and be lazy and not care about your work. It means that's the incentive and you should still be passionate. Meanwhile, yeah, like Jerome Powell is a centimillionaire or whatever. I, I, I don't know, man. I like I definitely think that we're witnessing systemic failure of the regulatory system, um, U.S. and otherwise. DARE Act in the Bahamas is a joke, is a joke. Um, the entire Caribbean in general, like almost all of those countries, just the banking structures and the offshore, you know, captive insurance and just the wildest schemes to totally flout financial regulation. And nobody cares. Nobody cares whether it's there or here or in Europe or in in Asia. I don't know. Um, and I don't know what the, I don't know what the solution is in the end. I guess that's at the, come bring this back to where we started. We've, we're seeing the globaliza globalization take its toll on all of this stuff, taking its toll on regulators abilities to accomplish their goals. I mean, how do they fix it? Can they, can they turn this around? <laughs> I don't know. I, I really don't know that we can turn around the, uh, regulatory some of the regulatory issues because like 
we are so fundamentally divided. And if you look at like the Supreme Court decision on the EPA, their general tenor seems to be that they are going to reduce every regulator's power to the bare minimum interpretation of the very letters of the law that mm. created them. And like even in the case of the SEC, we've talked about like they part of their mandate, at least their soft one, is that they're not supposed to like bankrupt or take out companies. Like they are not supposed to do that if the company is still existing. And like, so when you can't really clearly tell what your intervention is going to cause, can you really intervene in that way? And that's also kind of true when it comes to like... Burrito. Like ah. judges, like it's very rare in America for there to be a case where the final sentence is like killing me corporate dissolution right like a corporate death sentence that is a penalty that can be used but it's very rarely used in america and i think it's kind of related to the same kind of things we're seeing here is that there's this kind of expectation that you shouldn't go after these people you shouldn't try to destroy this value it's more important to protect it than to punish some of this bad behavior and that's true even when the bad behavior like HSBC, which you talked about before, the cartels had boxes that were designed to be like one inch smaller than right. the teller window in each dimension that yeah. they would stack full of 20s wrapped in elastic bands and shoved through there. Like it was blatant and their fine was large, but it was a fraction of the amount they laundered. Yeah. I mean, I guess I wish that more of these, more of these regulators and law enforcement agencies were going after... Going after these companies that were committing this stuff and doing these these wrongs and not necessarily trying to put them out of business, but like, I don't know, people should get in trouble for this stuff. It's silly. It's silly to me. It's silly to me. And I know it's the it's the classic like white collar crime people. You are killing me. <laughs> oh, this is my little white collar criminal. Come here. But. Come <laughs> here. Yeah, no, I think you're right that like you want these people to have consequences. You want there to be punishments, but like it's a challenging thing to develop the political will for. And like if we lack it to even do it internally in America, like trying to envision some global cooperation between regulators that results in some kind of serious impediment to Binance, Huobi, Poloniex or whatever is spun up now that FTX is gone. I really struggle to envision what that would look like. I mean, I hope I hope that. I don't know. I don't know what we're going to see. I'm 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 reaching a a weird hopelessness wave <laughs> right now, but we'll see how that pans out. I think I said to you there's a specific bank I would rather see that bank go down than see Tether go down at this point. Like not that Tether can burrito. <laughs> That's who I really want to see go down now is burrito. I've had enough of this nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> She's gonna just keep going. <clears throat> hey, Gail, get over here. Okay, well, I I think that's gonna probably do it. Um, we thankfully before this took a complete turn, um, we were able to discuss the auditors, finance, and the future of, the of future of regulatory regime. We'll see how that turns out. I don't think. I don't think it looks good. Um, thank, thank you all for t 
tuning in. Uh, I'm probably going to re-upload this in, in like an hour or so to fix some of the freezing we had in the beginning and maybe some of the audio issues. So if you experienced those in the beginning, check back on our channel in like an hour. Thank you all. <laughs>